Hey, before we jump into the actual interview, I want to take a second to actually introduce our guest for this episode. Dr. Chris Gray is a super expert on buyer psychology. In fact, he's got an impressive resume, a doctorate in psychology, and you know a massive list of things that he's he's done and shows that he's been on. Um, but here's why I wanted him on the show. Okay, he, he's interviewed, observed, profiled, shopped along like thousands of shoppers to uncover the secrets of their purchase decisions and buying behavior. And I think that buyer behavior is something that is actually really fascinating when it comes to craft beer and why people choose certain brands as to others. Okay, but Dr. Chris you know, has actually worked with a lot of companies to help them get into the minds of their customers. You know, his resume includes brands like Adidas, Nestle, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Southwest Airlines, and, and lots of others. But he's also worked with brands in the brand, in the craft beer space too, like Kona Beer and the Craft Beer Alliance. You know, after talking with Chris, it's clear that he's truly an expert on buyer behavior and consumer psychology. There is so much that we learned and discussed about how those things relate and are uncovered in the craft beer space. I'm so glad I got a chance to chat with him and share this conversation with you. I hope you enjoy it too. Okay, here's the interview. All right, man, as I told you, dude, I'm like so excited for the topics that we are going to cover today. Um, Thanks again for for hopping on and giving us some time. Um, You know, I guess I want to jump right into like a why, why portion of this, like why do we even care about this stuff? And you're the subject matter expert on buyer behavior and buyer psychology, but like, why should we even care about this stuff as a business owner? Like, why is that something you should be curious about and, and care about for your business? Yeah, sure. Well, it, first of all, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a category where there's a lot of passion. I certainly love it and engage with the category all the time. And so I uh, am just thrilled to be here. Uh, so that's great. Um, yeah, you know, when we think about um, brands and um, the challenges that brands have in reaching their consumers, um, you know, with a crowded marketplace, with all the challenges of regulation and uh, you know, states being different and all that, one of the things that becomes really important is how well you understand your consumer. Because if you want to reach reach someone or get their attention, think about it in your own life. You know, if you want to connect with somebody, if you want to um, influence them in some way. The better you know them, the better able you are to do that. And so, you know, what I do is help brands and retailers understand their customer and actually step into their shoes. Um, One of the things that I like to say is that it's not enough anymore just to think about your customer. You actually have to start thinking like your customer if you really want to have that impact and stand out. And so consumer psychology is something I, you know, have been... um, doing for 25 years, um, have a lot of experience across a huge number of categories um, and some experience with the craft beer category as well. Um, What I've seen and what I've learned is that, you know, when you can really empathize with your customer, understand their life, their aspirations, their needs, why they would engage in your category, why they would want to even look at your brand or, or purchase it, the more you know that, um, the better able you're going to be to connect with them, get their attention, engage with them, 
and encourage them to buy. So I think it's uh, it's really important uh, for brands to really understand uh, that significance of the, of the psychology of it. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to to answer that question because you know the you know as a marketing person the question is often served to us is like, Hey, I want to make more money. Like, how do I make more sales? And, you know, a huge portion of that is trying to engineer your marketing so that it does speak to your customer and and does, you know, earn their attention and these types of things. But in order to do that, you know, you mentioned it perfectly. You kind of have to think like your customer. And this is a really interesting thing because, you know, as a brewer and someone who looks at beer and the tap room and these things from that lens, you know, to make that jump into looking at it from the consumer perspective, from the patron perspective and all of the different segments of those patrons, that's like a challenge. So like, how, how do you do that? As a, is there any tactics that you could apply or think of or ways to think like your customer as opposed to like an owner or as a, as a yeah, for sure. You know, and I think, um, there's so much that a business owner has to think about, right? I mean, they have to think about operations. They have to think about, um, you know, their sales. They have to think about their, their um, employees and their business. Um, and so thinking about or thinking like their customer kind of gets pushed to the side sometimes. Um, and that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think it is something that does require some attention. And uh, I, I I have a process that I use with a lot of different brands and clients. Um, it's, it's, it's called engagement engineering. It's a six and a half step process for uh, really uh, influencing behavior and beefing up your sales. Uh, it starts with developing empathy. Um, and I can't stress enough how important that first step is. Um, having empathy for your customer, um, which it's, Empathy is kind of a weird word. We get it mixed up with sympathy. They're two different things. So sympathy sounds like sympathy is like, oh, sorry, you know, that's you know, and that's really not what this is about. This is yeah. just about stepping into the shoes of your customer. Um, and one of the things, you know, there's so many things that I've learned as a therapist. My background is in psychology. I was practicing uh, psychologist, um, and there's so many things that I've learned. Um, in my training and my practice um, that have been a, really applicable uh, in this situation. And one of them is this uh, activity called bracketing. And in bracketing, what you do is you become really aware of your own perspective, your own ideas about the customer, your own ideas about um, the situation, all of that. And then you kind of bracket those in your head and you put those aside. And you come at your customer with fresh eyes to understand their situation, their lives, their needs, aspirations, and all of that. And it just helps to give you a little bit more of an objective look at what's happening with your customer, not looking through your lens, but looking at at it through their perspective on their terms. And that's a really helpful way uh, to start that process of building empathy for them. So it's... it's, um, it is the first thing that I do when I work with customers uh, in this process or my, my clients in this process is, is to take them through that bracketing exercise. Huge point there and a challenge to, to do that, like to really separate yourself and be able to identify that, Hey, this is me and my own personal bias in this situation and self-awareness you have to have in that situation too. Right. 
Absolutely. You know, it is, it's, a, it's almost cliche how, how much we hear that, but it, it, things are a cliche because they have some ring of truth to them. Right. And it really is sort of know thyself. Uh, and <laughs> you know, when you do that, it's a huge part of uh, becoming a therapist because there's a, in, like so much of the training is about understanding your own stuff. Uh, so that you can kind of set that aside and realize that that's not what's happening in this situation. That's mine, not theirs. And um, I think when you are a business owner, when you are a brand, we think so much about our own business and our own brand that we can become myopic. And that can really be dangerous because it sets up blind spots for you. You will miss opportunities. You'll miss potential barriers to purchasing your product. Because of course you think your product's great, right? I mean, you spent so much time building it and creating it and marketing it. Um, I would hope that you think it's great, uh, but you can't just assume that your customer is going to think it's great. And so you have to be able to look at their perspective with fresh eyes. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like, you know, you might think that you're your beer is great and you dedicate a lot of time and resources into it and really any product, but like, what if it's not, you know, right. like what if it hits the marketplace and like, it just tanks and nobody likes it. Um, how do you get back up on the horse? You know, like that's a huge emotional blow. I think that a lot of small business owners have me included, you know, I write a lot sure. of my own marketing content and stuff. And like, when it doesn't land, I'm like, personally, like it's, it's difficult to separate yourself in that way. Um, but I wonder if you can speak to that too, is like, how do you, you know, uh, you know, take it in stride and, and keep, keep trying. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is really personal for me. I mean, uh, as you know, I, I grew up in a retail family, um, uh, in mid Michigan, there's a great, uh, furniture and boutique called Gray's furniture, um, that I literally grew up in. Uh, my parents started that business when I was four. And so I'm really aware of, how much blood, sweat, and tears goes into building a brand and a business um, and how personal that becomes. And I think that when, when something doesn't work, it's important to remember that that's not you. Uh, it's so easy to take it personally. Um, and that can become really um, uninspiring or it can really put, keep you down. And I think to separate yourself from that and realize that uh, this brand is not me. Uh, I am separate from it and I can continue to grow and develop and get feedback um, that will actually help me become better. And, you know, it's interesting. And you mentioned, you know, what if you, you put your beer out there and it tanks and it just does terribly. That's like the worst case scenario, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a whole, um, spectrum of other things that could happen. You could put it out there and it could be okay, or it could be good, but it's not, you know, but it's getting beat by other brands that are better, you know? And so I think dedicating ourselves to just constant improvement, no matter where we are, um, and, and really surrounding yourself with support for that as well is so important. Um, I think, particularly now with the pandemic and everything, I hope that we all start to realize how important it is to have other people around us and have their support and encouragement and feedback and all of those things. Um, it's certainly something that for me has been challenging, you know, to, to continue that process when you feel isolated. Um, and so I would just really encourage everyone who is working on a brand or working on their business to get that support and, um, you know, 
as well as feedback and all of that. And you take it in stride. You know, yeah, there's like um, memes out there. I remember seeing these, you know, in kind of the entrepreneurial circles about uh, kind of how it's like, it feels isolating being in that position because there aren't a whole lot of folks around you that can support or, or really can cope with that stuff. But I'd love that you said that, that, hey, you know, surround yourself with people that you can, you know, be in those networking groups, talk to, you know, your spouse, your family, your friends, and this kind of stuff, I think is what you're, what you're yeah. getting at and, and share that stuff. Um, Cause it, it, it does help. Um, something else you mentioned there was like, it's not so binary as to this thing tanked, you know, as an extreme example, there's like caveats and information in that whole entire process, which I think you've talked about this before. And I'd like to, to maybe take your lens on it here is like, having observation skills and yeah. trying to look at things in different ways and trying to identify that stuff. So are there any like skills that you would mention that, that you should try to hone or look towards to, when looking at data or your performance or your market or your customers or, yeah. or that sort of thing? Yeah. And for me, I think you know, data is incredibly important and it should be a foundation for any brand or business. Um, and I think we can sometimes underestimate the power of real life experiences um, and how important they can be in um, innovation and understanding your customer and creating those human insights that can really make a difference for you. So while data, again, is is important, you have to remember, I'm a qual- I've been a qualitative researcher for 25 years. So I know the importance of layering in those human insights with the data as well. Because one of the things that's it's with data is that as important as it is, it doesn't tell the whole story and it, it can't tell the whole story. There are nuances. There are um, different stories that people have that can really make a difference for how you communicate your brand, how you position it and everything. And, and so one of the things I would suggest to everyone is combine data with those more human insights, like observation, qualitative uh, experiences, spend time with your target customer, uh, because you will find those little nuances in their lives, the needs, their aspirations that can really make a difference for you in differentiating your brand and communicating with customers that are going to be interested in what you have to offer. Really great point there. And like... I'm so much in the data as a marketer. We're con- I have the analytics dashboards. It's like, man, I'm constantly looking at this stuff. But the qualitative information that you can get from just having conversations with yeah. your your you know people at the bar or you know with your patrons or or that kind of stuff. But I think it also brings a good point that you know we technology keeps getting better and better and better. And we almost want to lean on it, you know, to to get this information. You know, what do you think about the role of technology as it relates to this kind of consumer information or buyer or like, yeah, you know, getting feedback from from your consumers, right? I always say technology second. Uh, No amount of technology can make up for a lack of understanding of your customer um, and and who they are and and what their lives are about. So, technology is important. It is uh, something that, I, and I don't want to be in a position of saying like, oh, it has to be one versus the other, because I think that uh, real life experience, that observation, that the, that engagement with your customer just fits really nicely 
with data as well. And they both um, reinforce and enhance each other in important ways. So what I'd say is be careful of leaning too heavily into data that you're losing touch with your customer. Um, they, you know, customers can kind of become this theoretical thing in our head if we're not out there engaging with them. Um, and so, you know, fortunately, you know, in the craft beer category, uh, you've got a great situation uh, that it's actually fun to engage with your customer, you know, and like you said, you know, go to bars, go to the store, go see people. This is something people have a lot of passion about. It's a fun category. You know, I've worked across so many brands, you know, that things like toilet paper or dish soap, where they would kill to have that kind of fun engagement. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. you know, and even though those are important categories and they have their own different kind of emotional engagement, it's a different kind of situation. And so kind of take advantage of the fact that you're in a category that is fun and people are passionate about, and there's a lot of playfulness with. Yeah, man. Um, you'd be surprised at how willing someone is to talk once they get a couple of beers in them. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, it's absolutely it. Uh, you know, I, yeah, it's it's so interesting to to really start thinking about these kind of things. And like, you know, there's a whole rabbit hole of of information when you really start thinking about buyer psychology. Like, why did they make this decision as opposed to that decision? Um you know, where, where do you put a, a stopper on the rabbit hole? Like as, as a small business owner, like you said, you come from that you know environment, like how deep is too deep? You know, and you start looking like conspiracy theory, like nothing matters <laughs> anymore. Everyone's right, influenced right. by everything. You know, where's that, where's that point for you or, or what would you uh, recommend? Well, I would say is a, is a guiding force is, is it adding value for you? Is it adding value for your company? Is it adding value most importantly for your customer? Um, if you start to get down the rabbit hole, what will happen is it ceases to add value and it just becomes an exercise in, you know, um, like you said, conspiracy theories or, you know, whatever that is, you know, it just gets, it gets out of hand and, and it's not, it's no longer about value. It's no longer about um, what's, what can we do that's going to be best for our customers and for our business. So turning the page or, or turning the direction here slightly into like the application of this information. You know, if you're gathering information, you start to formulate some ideas, you're looking at data, you're thinking, you know, like your customer. And now you want to start to like adjust your marketing. You want to start doing different things with your advertising. You want to start talking and to your customers differently. You know, ultimately you're trying to influence behavior. You want them to mm -hmm. buy more of your product or spend more time in your tap room. But like, how do you do that in a way that like isn't, nasty right that doesn't look like you're a shill you know right, uh, right you know it's a it's a topic that i'm very sensitive to because i get this question so many times which is oh you're a consumer psychologist aren't you just tricking people into buying things <laughs> they don't want yeah. <laughs> you know and my point to that is well you can do that um but i just don't think it's smart strategy um you know when you think about your own life when you are in a situation where you feel like you're being coerced, you know, your natural reaction is resistance. I don't want to be coerced. We, we, we place a really high value on autonomy, agency, um, of being, you know, being self-directed. And any time that we feel we're being tricked or coerced, first of all, we're angry. We get frustrated. 
but we react with resentment. Um, and if that continues, that can lead to avoidance, which if you're a brand and your target customers avoiding you, you're in big trouble. Um, and so what I say is, you know, I want to, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and feel good. I want to be able to sleep at night, but above and beyond that coercion and, you know, trickery, it's just not smart strategy. Um, you know, uh, as marketers, we are sophisticated. We have so many tools at our disposal. We can get anyone to buy something once, but that's not sustainable. If you're a company or a business that wants to grow, um, you have to be thinking about building relationships with your customers that are mutually beneficial. Um, and I talk a lot about it. One thing that I think is really important is building resilient relationships with your customers. And what I was that hoping means, that you talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. What that means is that there's a trust that's forming uh, between you and your customers and you, they know that you are, you know, everyone understands that you're a business, right? I mean, you would think that they would understand like you are trying to sell a product, but they also, um, after repeated experiences of getting value from what you're offering and, and what you're, um, how you're communicating, there's a trust that develops. And the deeper that trust goes, the more resilient that relationship. So if you think about some of the, you know, some of the big brands that people just love, right? So think about like Apple or Harley Davidson. Um, there's a trust. The, re the whole purpose of a brand, the whole reason we even care about brands is because we trust that in some way they're going to work for us. Um, without that trust, there is no brand. I mean, it is trust is the basis for every, every brand around. Um, and what happens when that trust builds in that resilience comes in. And what I mean by resilient is that they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You know, we know that nobody's perfect. Brands screw up all the time. People screw up all the time. But when you've built that resilient relationship, they're willing to say, okay, you didn't get it right this time, but I trust the next time you're, you know, that you're going to try to do better or that you've learned from this or that you're going to make it right. Um, when you've got that, that's a such value there because they're going to come back to you again and again. They're going to be interested in new offerings that you have. They're going to allow, you know, if you extend your brand into something else, they, you know, they'll be interested in that. You think about Apple again. I mean, they've expanded so much from just being about, you know, computers, you know, phones and watches and you know, everything. And they can only do that because they built those resilient relationships with their customers. Um, and trust is a funny thing because it can take um, years to build and it can take an instant to destroy. And so it's something that when I work with clients, it's, it's not just about building trust. It's about protecting that trust as well. Interesting point that you bring up there because like resilience, yeah, and maybe we, we try to draw the line there with that piece because you know, the way I think about it in terms of, of beer and maybe this is a crude example is like, you know, most of everything you've had from that location, from the service you've received there, from the product that you've, you've tasted is, is awesome. And then you have one bad experience and uh, or not great experience, or you did, you tried something that wasn't that good, but you're fine with it because most of you've built that trust over time. And that little bump in the road doesn't really matter in terms of your loyalty or your relationship with that, with mm -hmm. that brand. But like, what is something that would break that trust that would be like that instant breaker? 
it's like it's not just a an off flavor or you know yeah. one bad server. It's like something really catastrophic happened here. I wonder if you could dissect that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's um, something that feels like a betrayal. Um, so you know, it might be again coming back to coercion, finding out that a brand that you like is really doing something behind the scenes that is gross, you know, or um, is. Um, untoward, you know, or it's something, you know, their practices, the way that they're engaging with their customers is being coercive or they're lying. Um, you know, those kinds of things can have a real negative impact. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a, an example and I'm, I'm blanking right now, but I, I, if we come back to it, I'm sure I'll come up with some, some examples. No, no. Um, something I think of talking to you too, and this is something maybe you, uh, uh, know about too, because you're from or, or live in Chicago, um, and in the Midwest area, like Goose Island in that brewery there, you know, was a local ish brewery, right? It's grown and got bigger yeah. and in recent years. It's like, now they are owned by the conglomerate. They're nationally distributed. They're like a mega popular, mega popular brand. And like, I think there was like a little bit of breakage with some people yeah. that drank their beer and it's like, Oh, it's not the same anymore because they went corporate, they sold out. That is kind of what I think of as an example there is like, all right, there's there's something that broke in that relationship with some people. Some people not, some people didn't yeah. care, but others did, right? That's a great example. And it is actually one that, that happens quite frequently. Um, you know, I know that is a big issue in craft beer. I know that there are a lot of um I, I don't know exactly what the term is, but they're they seem like they're craft beers, but they're not really. They're yeah. really owned by the big conglomerates. I mean, that is an example right there. I mean, I think. In this day and age, you have to be transparent um, with your customers because everything is out there. All that information is available and it's going to get out. So I, you know, you know, these brands that are pretending to be, you know, small craft brands, and you find out, oh no, they're really part of this big conglomerate. Again, that's that's that kind of coercion. That is that kind of um being inauthentic. And you know, in in this in the craft beer industry, that authenticity really matters. People care about it because you're telling a story. And if that story is a lie, you know, the whole basis of your brand is gone. And, and so I think that's a great example. Um, you know, I have a, I still have a soft spot in my heart for Goose Island being a Chicago and, but yeah, you're right. It does, you know, it does have an impact. And, you know, I remember this is an old example, but, um, you know, Levi's, the brand, um, you know, they were huge. I mean, Levi's is, is, uh, iconic in so many ways, um, you know, and in I don't know the seventies or eighties, um, they started selling their 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 jeans in you know really discount stores, and I won't name any names, but um, that is really when the brand really cratered, um, and it took them a long time to come back from that. You know, I, I love Levi's. I'm actually wearing Levi's right now. Um, <laughs> I love that brand. I really do. Um, and their story is really interesting because that was a big misstep and whether or not, you know, financially it made sense for them in the mind of their avid consumer, um, it undermined their perspective of that brand. And it, it took them years to, to recover from that. Great point. Yeah, man, Levi's is an interesting case study for sure. Uh, and I think that, you know, lots of small businesses, breweries included, but, you know, lots of small businesses in different industries, like there's this point where 
you know, you're growing and like to get to the next step at this phase, like you've got to distribute regionally, or you've got to start selling in, in a retailer that, you know, you hadn't done before. And the perception could be that, you know, it's not going to be the same anymore. The quality's not there. It's, you know, now that they've gone corporate or whatever the case is when, when the intention is absolutely not that it's like, well, we want to get more people to try this stuff. And like, we want to make more money and we want to hire more people and impact more lives and these kind of things. But the point you made about transparency being part of this being authentic is kind of, that's another like marketing buzzword is authenticity, but yeah, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, it almost cliche, but again, you know, cliches are cliches because there's some truth to them. And I think it is exactly right. And, you know, and, and I think that it's okay to be part of a conglomerate, but, you know, I mean, it's okay. It's not, you know, you might not appeal to everyone, but I think you're much better off being upfront about why that's the case and what advantages that brings to the table um, versus trying to cover it up or trying to make a fake story um, that will, you know, ultimately backfire. Um, and sometimes it can backfire in spectacular ways, which is just, it's, it's just really not a sustainable way to grow a business. Not anymore, man. We got not the, anymore. We got the yeah. sluice, the internet sluice are out there. They'll find out what's up with you and expose you have, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have all this information at our fingertips. And not only is that information out there, but then that information can travel so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, you really have to, to be aware and stay on top of that. Right on. So it was something I, I heard you talk about, um, and it was in relation to, I think, retail environments. You got a ton of experience in that world mm-hmm. too, but I'd like to frame it in in the craft beer space and think, I guess, retail-esque. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of you know, uh, breweries and beers that are on the shelf at the grocery store or at the liquor store, or mm-hmm. you know, and they're right next to big names. You know, of course, you got your your Budweiser and your Millers, but there's other, you know, uh, you know, Shiner and uh, Blue Moon and these other kind of crafty-esque right. beers. It's like, how do you, as as a small business owner, as a brewery that is maybe just getting into this, or they're not, maybe you have no intention of being statewide distribution, but you want to sell some of your beer in the local Kroger or Albertsons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you compete against these people that have million dollar budgets and stuff like how, how do you how do you like even begin to open that up or or where do you stand your ground as a brand in yeah. those sense? yeah well one of the things that i i think is important there's uh a saying that um you don't attack your enemy where they're strongest you attack them where they're weakest and that's where it's really important to do due diligence in the marketplace and understand what your strengths are and where you can play and have the most, uh, the biggest advantage. Um, you know, you may not be able to compete directly with some of those behemoth brands, but you don't necessarily have to, um, just find your niche and find the value that you bring to the table and really play on that. Um, I think there are, you know, like let's take price for an example. All right. Um, a huge brand with all the resources in the world, um, they can compete on price really successfully because they have buying power. Um, they're you know, the ingredients that they need to purchase. They're hu- purchasing huge amounts of it, so they can get those discounts. They can you know, leverage that volume. 
to bring their own prices down, like their own, uh, what their expenditures, bring those down. If you're a small craft brand, if you try to compete with them on price, you're going to lose every single time because your, if you discount your price, that's not coming out. That's not a result of your buying power. That's going to be coming out of your margins. Right. right. And, and that is a sure way to bankruptcy, frankly. Um, but it is, there's a temptation to do that because uh, price is such a tangible um, thing. You know, it's easy for a customer walking down the aisle to say, oh, well, that's $8.99 and this one's $12.99, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's more difficult uh, but worthwhile is to find the ways to compete based on emotional needs, based on your consumer's aspirations, what, they, what they're really looking for. It's not as tangible, but it can have huge benefits, particularly if you're a smaller brand with a great story. Man, this is making me think that we came full circle here. We started with like why this stuff is important. And now just having you say that portion right there about, you know, this is ultimately where, the, where it comes into practice is how you're going to position yourself, you know, how you're going to, to handle your marketing and your messaging, but to do that in a way that's reflective of, of what your customers want and what they're looking for in you and the relationship you're having with them. And then, you know, price becomes something that maybe isn't, isn't at the forefront. Cause I, I think you're totally right too. The first thing people think of is like, well, I got to be cheaper. got to do a discount on something. And, you know, my dad is, is, uh, he's recently retired now, but small business owner worked in the restaurant world. And like, he was always be like, I'm not giving coupons out. You know, we offer a good product. You know, it's, it's good for these reasons. We have good relationships with our customers. I don't need to give you $3 off this plate. You're going to buy it because it's, it's good. And, and I'm not going to be that guy. And he's, he died and he's not dead, but he would die on the hill. Right. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear uh, he's not dead. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's doing well. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I think that's that's related here is is trying to use that information. Um, yeah, like and I said, is, go ahead. I was just say it, it is it is difficult. I don't want to um, diminish how challenging that can be. Um, but I you know I've been doing this for twenty five years, and the number of times that I have heard from what well, big brands or little brands um, that you know, my, my customer just shops on price. They just shop on price. They don't care about anything else. And my first thing is, well, what are you doing to contribute to that? Because, you know, we teach customers how to respond to us. And if we are teaching them that they should be buying on price, then they're going to buy on price. Um, and so like your father, I think, you know, it's a very important perspective to say, I have value. My brand has value, um, and we're going to we're going to raise that, and we're going to add value, and we're going to continue to do that versus discounting, 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 because that is a race to the bottom. And so many, um, so many brands, so many companies have, you know, gone out of business because of that race to the bottom. And I really, you know, and I, I speaking from my own experience too, with my family's business, you know, they're, you know, it's, it has not been easy, um, you know, with the advent of big box retailer and then online, you know, retail and everything. And they have a, they really don't have much of an online footprint. Um, and there's always that pressure of, 
boy, do we need to lower our prices? Do we need to do more discounting? Do we need, and I always, you know, work with them and just say, let's find ways to add value, you know? And the thing is that how you add value, there's so many different ways that you can do that. You get really creative with it. And it's something that when I work with clients, um, a lot of times we'll just have brainstorm sessions where it's like, let's think of, you know, 50 ways, you know, let's take an hour and we're just going to think of 50 ways we can add value for our customer. We have to start with knowing your customer well and what they're going to consider value, right? But then just get really creative about it because adding value isn't necessarily adding to your product. It can be, and you can, you know, innovate new flavors, new things, you know, all of that. But some of it might just be the way you communicate. Some of it might just be there's an emotional uh, need that your customer has that you can supply with the way that you engage with them. Um, It doesn't have to be um, always about the product itself. There's so many other avenues for you to add value. I mean, you think about um, a great example that I love is, um, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Bombas, Um, their socks, they started out as a sock company. Yeah, yeah. Um, they socks, t-shirts, underwear, that kind of thing. Well, one of the things that they found was that the most requested items um, in homeless shelters are for underwear, socks, and t-shirts. So their program, and one of the ways that they add value is that when, for every pair of socks you buy, they donate a pair of socks to a homeless shelter and they have these programs set up and uh, i've known some of the guys there and they're just they're just a great company but you know that is a way of adding value in a way that is just unique and different but is really meaningful as well and i think that um when you can get creative about it you can really find some great ways to add value that will work for you as a company and won't necessarily break the bank either. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be something that is complicated. It can be fairly simple. I'm really glad that you said the things that you said uh, for a couple of reasons. I'll point out a couple of things that I pulled from that, especially was like the the finding value piece. You know, I think a lot of times when marketers say, you got to add value, we got to add value the perception often is like, well, we got to invent new things to add to this product, which often comes with a price tag and now you're increasing costs. And that's not really what you're saying. It's like, well, let's find the value that we're already supplying here and then communicate that. Because chances are you probably are providing more value than you think, but you're not necessarily communicating that to your customers. And if you did that, you're not to relate this back to price. You're talking about something that is, you know, justifying the price or more, you know, you could charge more because you've added so much value. Absolutely. And then um, the other piece of that is, you know, when it comes to to beer, it's like how many different ways can you add value with a can of beer, you know, but the product itself isn't necessarily the end of it. There's all this other stuff you could be doing, whether it be charitable fundraising or supporting a cause or just bringing awareness to something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which, you know, I often say that beer is a lifestyle product. It's very much, it's got to relate to someone's lifestyle and mm-hmm. feel valuable that way. So uh, I think you're you're hitting both those notes there. Yeah. So I'm really glad you said that. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's think about adding value more broadly, and and if you make someone feel good about purchasing your product, you've just added value, and That's so that point. just opens it up to a whole array of ways that you can add value. I mean, something as simple as um, you know, 
again, my family's business and Graves Furniture, you know, go visit them if you're in Michigan. Um, you know, they write handwritten notes um, that they put in, you know, when someone orders something or buys something that, um, you know, takes time to come in. So they buy a sofa that has been custom, you know, they custom build a sofa. And so it yeah, obviously it takes weeks for that to come in. In the meantime, they write a handwritten note to them just saying, thank you so much for supporting small business. That's value. Right? That's awesome. Your, your customer feels supported. They feel like they're appreciated. At the end of the day, I mean, never underestimate the, the significance of feeling appreciated. We all want to feel appreciated. It's a basic human need. And when you can find ways to, to make sure that your customer feels appreciated, you've just added value and a really important amount of value. So much value, the things that you're saying here. And this is what you do, right? Like you work with, with companies, with individuals, you consult with them and, and help yeah. them see this stuff, right? Absolutely. Yep. That's, you know, my my approach is, is I'm an expert in consumer psychology and buying behavior. Uh, my clients are experts in their business and in their markets, and we work together. Um, and you put those two things together, and man, it's like, it's like Reese's, you know, two great tastes that taste great together. So it, it, there it we really go. Works. Yeah. Too bad that tagline's already gone. Uh. <laughs> right on, right on. And, um, and it, I would encourage anybody who is listening to this that is interested in this topic. You know, I went down, you know, the, the Dr. Chris rabbit hole and, and digesting your content right, with the various podcasts you've been on. Your website has some great resources on it too. So props to that. I mean, I think you got a great, very value-focused website, by the way. I read the copy and I was like, this guy clearly knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, awesome. it's good I stuff. I appreciate that. Uh, it's always good nice to know, like, yeah, your message is getting out there. So thank you. Yeah. And uh, we'll... Uh, We'll link stuff on this too, you know, so if you're listening, just check out the show notes and get over to uh, Chris's website, thebiologist.com and uh, check out that stuff there. You know, I want to, you know, be cognizant of your time too. And and I want to wrap up on a fun note, Um, you know, you know, you mentioned you're a fan of Goose Island. So obviously you're, you're a beer drinker, you know, what's your go-to, you know, what do you, you know, if you go to a brewery, what's the beer you're looking at and you're, you're going to. You know, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. So I, I prepared a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, it, and this is 100% like true and authentic. I, my, my absolute go-to is Lagunitas. I, I love the brand. I love their beers. I, I, they have a great story. Um, you know, they, have a, they have a brewery in Chicago. Um, that's really cool. And I've actually been to the one out here in California as well, which is really cool. Um, but they just, they just, they're a fun brand, you know, and I'll, get, I'll give you an example of, of one of the things I love about them. You know, they have a seasonal, uh, you, I'm sure you know this, but they, they have a seasonal uh, brew called uh, Brown Sugar. Okay. But, but every once in a while, um, something happens with the, the brewing process that it doesn't work out. And they, they don't release it that season. And, and people were getting up in arms about it. Like, oh, where is it? This is terrible. And so they have a replacement for when that happens called Lagunita Sucks. And I think it's just <laughs> amazing. Like, that is so cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, that they can have fun with themselves. And that's, you know, that's, that's just a really cool thing. But um, there's so many great brands out there. There's a little, little brand out in, in Michigan called Perrin. Um, I go yeah. to whenever I have a chance. It's in Southwest Michigan. 
Um, and, you know, I love Stone, uh, their beers, they, you know, again, really creative, interesting brews. Um, and then uh, another one that I get to all the time um, is, wow, the name's escaping me right now. And I go all the time. Um, I'll think of it in a second. Nice. Um, what's yeah, your favorite kind of beer that's uh no 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 maybe i'll chalk your memory here what's what's the yeah. beer you like to to drink are you an ipa guy you're stout guy you know uh what's your what's your favorite i love ipas i mean you know it, and it's it's almost cliche again you know i think they're so big right now um i like i think the hazy ipas are really fun um but now i've been actually doing a lot more just going back to um kind of more traditional brews and and um it's stout's a little heavy for me, but, uh, my, my husband actually, he loves, he loves stouts and he's always, you know, trying to find it like the ones they have to, you know, drink with a knife and you know, knife and fork and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's I've funny. been actually loggers lately. I've just been really enjoying loggers. Um, getting back into that green bush. That's it. Uh, I knew we'd get there. Yes. Um, you know, they're this great little, um, brewery in southwest michigan and uh they just have like their i think their uh kind of big uh brew is uh shot uh star chicken shotgun yeah and uh they're just just a great place to hang out cool people which that's is what awesome. it's all about right i mean that's what that it's is all. what it's about man that's what's stuck with you for sure yeah uh, and uh, the emotional connection there and all the fancy brand marketing terms we talked about. Stick there. That's yeah. awesome, dude. I'm an IPA guy too. And it's funny enough, my fiance, she loves uh, uh, the dark beers too. She loves the bourbon barrel aged stouts and that stuff. And I can do them occasionally, but I, just, I can't sit there and drink a bunch of them. So I'm yeah. an IPA pilsner, yeah. this guy. So we match. How cute. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> cool. Well, man, I, I very much so appreciate your time. I had a great time chatting with yeah. you and uh you. i can't say thank you enough yeah well thank you again it's absolutely been my pleasure love having these conversations and particularly what a fun you know category to be talking about as well so thanks again yeah of course man